Uh, so what does it mean to be great? That is the question that today's passage is seeking to answer for us. What does it mean to be great? And the reason this question pops up for us in the first place is because as the disciples and Jesus are traveling along one day, the disciples get in an argument amongst themselves about which among them was the greatest. Which one of us is the best? Which one of us is the greatest? Now, to us, that may seem to be a bit of a surprising conversation for the disciples to be having amongst themselves. Uh, maybe even a disappointing conversation. You know, we'd like to think of the disciples as people who are focused on the higher spiritual matters of life, but here they are arguing over who is the best. Uh, maybe it even seems to us, honestly, like a little bit of a dumb argument to be getting in in the first place. I mean, who argue? Who has an actual argument about who is the greatest? Is that a real conversation that people have? Uh, but what we need to keep in mind here is that this argument that we're seeing today is an argument that's taking place between 14, 15, 16-year-old boys, right? That's how old the disciples are in the story. And they're at a place developmentally, right, where, where they're really concerned about, about who is who, who's on top, who's in, who's out, where do I stand in the social hierarchy, right? This is where they are developmentally. We can't hold this argument against them. And Jesus seems to recognize that this is just kind of where they are, this is what they're concerned about. Uh, so he doesn't scold them for having this argument. He actually engages the question they're, they're asking fairly directly, uh, or at least as directly as Jesus answers any question that he, he tackles. <clears throat> uh, so what he does is there's a, a child playing nearby, uh, and he, he picks up said child and sets it, the scripture actually this morning says, sets it down. I don't know why they chose to translate it like that. It could, could have been him, could have been her, but it says it. Sets the child down there amongst he and the, the disciples. Uh, and he points to this child and he says, anyone who welcomes a child like this welcomes me. But not just that, he says, anyone who welcomes a child like this welcomes the one who sent me. So what Jesus is saying is that anyone who welcomes a child like this is, in essence, welcoming God. So obviously here, Jesus is using this child as a metaphor, uh, I guess technically a simile, uh, for the kinds of, of people that the disciples were supposed to welcome. That is, the kind of people they were supposed to seek out and love and serve. <clears throat> and what Jesus is trying to get at with this metaphor, I think... Uh, is a little hard for us to wrap our heads around. Uh, because we live in what is a very child-centric culture. Right? We live in, in a culture where parents don't think twice about dropping half a month's salary on the latest stroller. Uh, we live in, in, in a culture where at big family gatherings, right, everybody is staring with, with riveted attention uh, on every move that a new baby makes, every smile, every laugh, every twitch every bit of drool, right? We're all clapping and cheering for that little baby. We live in a very child-centric culture. Children are the center of our family life. 
I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not condemning condemning that at all. Uh, but what I am saying is that it was very, very different in first century Palestine. They were not a child-centric culture at all. Uh, so children had no legal status. They had no social status. Uh, and they brought no economic advantage is to uh, families, right? You couldn't uh, declare them as dependents on your taxes. Uh, you got no advantage like that. <clears throat> uh, so until children came of age, until they could ply the family trade, uh, until they became useful in a very practical sense, children were, were largely ignored. Right? They, they were fed, yes, that's true. They were generally tended after. Their parents made sure they didn't run into the fire pit. Uh, but they were not the center of family life, not at all. Uh, and in light of the fact that, that at the time only about one in five kids actually made it to adulthood, um, there actually might be a, some sort of an element of self-protection you know, in that style of child-rearing for the parents. You, know, you don't want to get too attached to a child who... You know, might not make it in all likelihood. <clears throat> uh, in any case, what, what Jesus is getting at with this metaphor is that the disciples are, are supposed to reach out and be in relationship with people that the broader culture have determined not to have any worth whatsoever. People of low status or no status of all. People who your association with isn't going to bring you any status or prestige or social advantage. Uh, if anything, the status and the prestige and the social advantage is going to flow in the other direction from you to them. So greatness, Jesus is saying, greatness is about practicing humility towards other people. It's about not discriminating against not disdaining, not looking down your nose at anyone, no matter where they stand in the social hierarchy. Pretty straightforward. And would that Jesus' teaching on greatness stop there? Alas, it does not, does it? He continues on a few lines later, and he has this little gem, right? He says, Let anyone who causes one of these little ones to slip up uh, and here I want you guys to note that he has changed his language from talking about little child to little ones. Little ones, he says. Uh, and that is a phrase that, yes, can refer to children, uh, but it is a phrase that is also used to refer to people at the bottom rung of the social ladder. So people like widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. Uh, they were also referred to as little ones. Uh, so Jesus says that anyone who causes one of these little ones to slip up, it would be better for that person to have a huge millstone tied around their neck and for them to be thrown into the sea. Jesus is kind of giving off a Tony Soprano vibe here, isn't he? <clears throat> but it doesn't stop there. He says, if your hand causes you to slip up, it is better for you to chop off that hand. If your foot causes you to slip up, it is better for you to chop off that foot. If your eye causes you to slip up, it is better for you to pluck out that eye and throw it in the garbage can. These are some pretty strong words to be sure. 
But what Jesus is getting at here is that greatness is not just about how we look at and treat other people. Uh, but greatness is also about how we look at and treat ourselves. So more precisely what Jesus is saying, greatness is about being able to look at ourselves with radical, radical honesty. And when we see something inside ourselves going on that is cutting either us or other people off from the love of God, whatever that is, don't deny it, don't defend it, don't rationalize it like we love to do. So Jesus here is encouraging us to ruthlessly admit that thing, whatever it is, and then take bold and decisive action to change ourselves such that we can be better vessels, better instruments of God's love. And preferably we would do that before it rises to a level where we need to you know, chop off one appendage or another. Greatness, Jesus is saying, is also about practicing humility towards ourselves. So what does it mean to be great? To be great is to be humble. Humble towards others. Humble towards ourselves. Jesus says in the opening of this passage, those who want to be first must make themselves last. They need to become servants of all. Now, well, I don't want to jump ahead too far in the story and kind of give away where we're going here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think this teaching uh, about greatness, this redefinition of greatness as humility, uh, takes on a special poignancy when we think about the way that Jesus actually lived his life. Uh, and in particular, when we think about the way Jesus spent his, his very last day on earth, the, those 24 hours leading up to his crucifixion that he knew was coming, he knew it was there on the horizon. He knew that's where he was headed. We think about the way Jesus spent those last moments on earth, those last moments that he had to, you know, shore up and preserve his legacy. Do you guys know what Jesus chose to do in those last 24 hours? See some knowing head nods. Yeah, yeah, he prayed. Yep, yes. Yeah, he washed his disciples' feet. He washed his disciples' feet. Has anyone here been to a Maundy Thursday service? Oh, a lot of us. So those of you who aren't in the know, a Maundy Thursday is a Thursday directly preceding Easter. Uh, and, and remembering Jesus washing his disciples' feet, uh, a lot of times in, in these services, uh, there's actually ritual foot washing. Uh, so those who have been, has anyone actually had the pleasure of washing other people's feet? Mary, John? Yeah, a couple people. So that's a, a very humbling activity, right, to participate in. And for those who haven't done it, just, just imagine kneeling in front of someone, right? Taking their, their feet in your hands, washing their feet, patting dry their feet with a cloth, anointing their feet with oil. That's a humble posture to be in kneeling before other people like that. 
It's a humble activity to, to be engaged in. And adding another level, actually, to, to the humility that, that Jesus was expressing in this action, we need to remember that the, the feet that he was washing, these weren't pedicured, clean, well-looked-after feet of you know, upper-middle-class people. Right? These were the feet of, of poor peasant boys who walked around the desert wearing flip-flops. Right, so these are, are feet that, that were dirty and, and callous. These were, were feet that were dry and cracked. These were the feet that Jesus washed in his last 24 hours on earth. And what that, that means for us, I think, is that this redefinition of greatness as humility, right? These aren't just words from Jesus. Right? Jesus is speaking these with integrity because this is how he actually lived his life, even up until his last moments. Right? This is not another politician telling us that we need to, to tighten our belts for the good of our nation while they're going off and giving speeches in front of the, the board of Goldman Sachs for 200 k a pop. This isn't another corporate CEO, right, telling the employees, oh, we don't have enough money to give you health insurance or, you know, a living wage, uh, while they themselves are, are cashing in performance bonuses to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, right? When Jesus says that, that being great is to be humble, these are not just words that he is preaching, words that he is saying. This is how he actually lived his life. There is a beautiful integrity to his words and to this teaching. So friends, may the spirit of Jesus that lives and works in us give us the courage, give us the conviction, and the integrity to live as Jesus lived, to be great as Jesus was great. Thanks be to God. Amen.